Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. Today, we are excited to be talking about the post-publication letdown with James Tate Hill, Renee K. Nicholson, and Megan Colhane Gowry. James Tate Hill is the author of a memoir, Blind Man's Bluff, released August 3rd, 2021 from W.W. Norton. His fiction debut, Academy Gothic, won the Nielsen Literary Prize for a first novel. His essays were notable in the 2019 and 2020 editions of Best American Essays. He serves as a fiction editor for Monkey Bicycle and contributing editor for Literary Hub, where he writes a monthly audiobooks column. Born in Charleston, West Virginia, he lives in North Carolina with his wife. Megan Colhane Galbraith is a writer, visual artist, and adoptee. She is the author of The Guild of the Infant Savior, an adopted child's memory book, a hybrid memoir and essays published by Mad Creek Books, Ohio State University Press. Her work was notable in Best American Essays 2021 and 2017, and her writing and art has been published or is forthcoming in Hyperallergic, Bomb, The Believer, Tupelo Quarterly, Hobart, Longreads, Hotel America, Catapult, and Redivider, among others. She is a graduate of and the Associate Director at the Bennington Writing Seminars and the Founding Director of the Governor's Institutes of Vermont Young Writers Institute. Renee K. Nicholson is the author of the poetry collections Roundabout Directions to Lincoln Center and Postscript and co-editor of the anthology Bodies of Truth, Stories of Illness, Disability, and Medicine. She serves as director of the Humanity Center at West Virginia University. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah. 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 So why don't we start out, maybe we could all just talk about our latest books and when they came out. So Renee, do you want to share? Sure. So I just had a book that came out um, 31st, 2021, called Fierce and Delicate, Essays on Dance and Illness. So right when things were sort of opening up COVID-wise, but nobody really knew, (laughs) and kind of the whole editorial process through COVID land, which, uh, you know, I'm sure... My colleagues here will have some thoughts on as well. So so that's kind of where I'm at. Megan, let's hear about your latest book. Sure. My book is The Guild of the Infant Savior, an adopted child's memory book. It came out in on May 21st. And it's a hybrid narrative that includes my visual art. And again, too, sort of coming out of the pandemic, I've been I've been getting very good at Zoom events. So <laughs> And yeah, James, I know yours came out in August. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. August 3rd. And I'm still in the thick of it. I think my online tour, I did have two in-person events, one of which was where I met Renee in person for the first time at WVU just, gosh, a week and a half ago. (laughs) And that was my second in-person event. And I think I finished for the time being anyway, all the the in-person events, but I'm still excitedly uh, doing podcasts like this one and and, uh, still writing things and and still, yeah. So I I guess in in regard to the letdown, I alter that to come down. I'm sort of, you know, the the adrenaline is is starting to subside, but the post-publication blues haven't really kicked in for me yet, though there's definitely peaks and valleys. 
I feel like no one told me about these post-publication blues. I knew about <laughs> like just from Courtney mom's book, you know, she talks about it in there, but I think this is what I've been experiencing these experiencing these last few months. I, I just kind of shuffle around my apartment thinking, wow, I did one thing today. I guess I should be proud of that because I don't have the energy to do. I can't, you know, I can barely think about writing my next book, which I'm really excited about, but I'm glad actually now to have, to have this thing labeled as like postpartum book depression. I yeah. feel like it's a little bit of that, you know? So I really prepared myself for an anticlimactic launch day. I think because of Anne Lamott's book, <laughs> Bird by Bird, where she talks about on her launch day, she and her friend who shared a publication date, like I think sent each other flowers and just called each other and laughed hysterically. <laughs> and that was <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> she expected, you know, balloons and <laughs> something to happen. And so I really prepared myself for that feeling. And I think because I prepared myself for that, I didn't experience it so much. I made a lot of plans. I got a little bit obsessed <laughs> with preparing it. I named these specific goals and I tried to celebrate each milestone leading up to it because I knew that was the process. So, you know, when it went up on Amazon, I celebrated. And when my friend saw it available at her library, like I celebrated each little thing, but I didn't realize that the actual letdown now, I think is more after <laughs> that day. <laughs> And so what was the actual launch day like for each of you? Maybe we can start there. It, it doesn't even feel like there was an actual launch day. <laughs> like it's certainly because you get your, you get your books ahead of time. So that sort of feels like it, but like I was still, you know, not quite quarantined in my house, but definitely not out and about. I do have to like, credit I, I'm working with a publicist and she sent me cookies with the the picture of my book on them like these sugar cookies which looked really awesome and I was like I don't know if they're going to taste good but I have to say I don't know where she found them but they were delicious so there was a lot of like self-celebration at my house with me and my husband and the dog <laughs> so like <laughs> a different rhythm like there wasn't like a day that felt like launch day I did a um, an event kind of early on, like mid-June, with some other West Virginia University Press authors. That's where Fierce and Delicate is is at, and and that was nice, but it didn't feel launchy. So I think I kind of like just feel like that we skipped over that part, and it went f directly from new book to old book. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But people did try. I did get, I, I mean, I have to be like, and especially like some writer friends. Like I had some really nice writer friends that were just like, hey, so excited to read your book. Hey, this is a big deal. Or like pushing things out on Twitter, you know, and you see it and you just feel like, oh, there's the love, right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. one email that made it really my the, somebody who works at Inkshares, Noah Broyles, sent me this beautiful email, and I don't know him at all. But he sent me an email that said, "I know that there's only one day when a debut author publishes her debut novel, and that's today." And I was like, "Okay, like here we are. <laughs> it's a day." <laughs> so exciting! I remember, you know, launch day. I because I 
kind of read Courtney Mom's book and I was like, okay, this is going to be my Bible for before and during and after. And she said, do something for yourself, right? So I went into New York City. I had been really, it was of course my first book and I kind of burned myself out. I just wasn't ready for all the new things I had to learn, you know, how to do graphics in Canva and how to like promote yourself in a very uncomfortable way. I felt this, like this onslaught of like me, me, me. And I'm not like that. Uh, I hope I'm not. And uh, I kind of had a first, uh, it's sort of like a breakdown. And I was like, I just have to drop out for a minute. And I went to see my, my high school friend, my dear high school friend in New York city. And we spent a long weekend running around New York because we finally could. It was just open and uh, we had dinner and talked about stuff that not, wasn't about the book and just, you know, got lost on the subway and had so much fun. And it was just the best. And at the same time, to your point, you know, Renee, like people were sending me lovely emails and texts and, you know, supportive, uh, supportive things on social media. And it just... So it felt so full of love for me at a time when I was, you know, kind of quite terrified because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was strange because there, as you, as somebody, I think Renee, you said, there's so many different phases before the book even comes out not least of which is the book actually arriving in readers' hands before launch day. Yeah. And I think it was, oh, a full week, maybe even uh, 10 days before my publication day that people were uh, posting Twitter pictures of, of my book in, uh, here's Blind Man's Bluff in, in uh, Times Square, Barnes & Noble, or wherever it was in New York. And I'm like, whoa, uh, that's really cool. Uh, I didn't know that was legal, <laughs> but I guess there's no like Harry Potter embargo on spoilers for, right. for memoirs, but yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's all those little lead up things. And plus I had been doing publicity stuff since basically the end of my spring semester and writing essays and shortening chapters to publish as excerpts. And, you know, I've probably written uh, somewhere between like 20 and 25% of the length of my book's word count in promotional stuff. And so, so that was still going after, well, after the launch days. But Lori, my wife, has been so great. It's like, you don't, you, you can't cook tonight. We have to celebrate this. And I'm like, <laughs> we just celebrated something yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> we have groceries we have to use. But like, uh, it was like, it was the Monday before my launch day. And so I was, you know, it's like Christmas Eve and you're, you're all like, Ooh, what's Santa going to bring me? And, and that was when somebody tagged me, everything I learn about, I get tagged on Twitter and so somebody tags me in the new the Dwight Garner New York Times review and I'm like certainly they wouldn't tag me if it was a bad review and this was like Monday at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. launch day eve and so that was you know like sobbing at my computer in in joy oh, and great. that so was great. so surreal and and so that one we definitely went out for and then I, th I did an online conversation with my agent, who's just so lovely in every way. And it was my launch night event, which was nice not to have to leave the apartment. So I don't even remember what we did for dinner, but it must have been something like takeout-y or something fast. But 
Yeah. So it was, it was definitely like pajama launch as opposed to, <laughs> you know, the pre-pandemic times when we were all, oh, <laughs> let's put on our fanciest evening wear. Yeah. <laughs> pajama launch. Do you guys think, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I got so nervous. I was just telling my boss this today. I, I feel like I've come so far in the six months since the launch of this book, because I would get so, so nervous for events. Like my launch event was with Jenny Bully and I was just like, Oh my God, I have to like start, like I was studying for a test or something. And <laughs> you know, I, I was terrified. I was like, Oh, she's like, I got you girl. Don't worry. And now I'm like, Oh, it's really just about talking about your book. Like I wrote this thing. I should be able to talk about it. I don't know <laughs> why I wore myself out thinking that, but there's, there's sort of a, at least for me as a debut author, there's, there was this terror that came with, I don't want to look stupid and I don't want people to think I look dumb in front of these Zoom events that like would draw, you know, 40, 50 people. Whereas if I was in person, you know, I would be lucky probably to get four, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Wonderful that way. But I think Zoom, I don't know about your experience, but Zoom, I feel like gave me more exposure or these online events gave my book more exposure and I'm so grateful for that and to everybody who's read it you know and and wrote to me I think my the timing of mine might have been a little different because mine was the end of August and I think people were really excited to have something in person to go to at least right here and so I've had more like three or four people come to my zoom events but I had a packed house at my in-person launch which I was not expecting that's so fantastic it actually made me really nervous because I thought it was going to be like my very close family and friends and uh, then it was like the first person who I didn't know came up to me and asked me to sign a book and I was like oh I have to think of like a thing to write to someone I don't know like I had not even considered it and so I just like had to come up with with my my signing phrase on the spot so I think the timing made mine a little different I did the same thing I was just at the Montclair Lit Fest it was the first in-person event and and people were asking me to sign their book I'm like oh I did not plan this I don't know what to say (laughs) yeah and I was like shaking like um (laughs) yeah Exactly. <laughs> Renee, I wanted to ask, Megan asked about jitters. I, I'm curious if all your many years of performing for large audiences as a professional <laughs> ballet dancer, does that like uh, confidence in front of a crowd translate to writing? I mean, not mm-hmm. to the writing, but to the, the presenting your writing? Right. So I actually have, you know, enough performance anxiety in both um, (laughs) venues uh, that you think I would have better strategies. But I guess I'm really good at hiding it because most people are like, oh, you're so confident. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so not. (laughs) But I think my role in WVU's Humanity Center has really helped me because I've been on the other side. Like when Megan was saying, you know, oh, I got you, girl, you know, like I'm now that person and I do a lot of Q&As being the question asker. (laughs) And I know as the question asker, I'm really just trying to present people's like super awesome coolness. And so now I just trust that that's what's going to happen to me. Um, Maybe that's naive. (laughs) Um, But, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, it, you know, it's interesting, though. The thing about 
dancing is typically you're on a stage and there are footlights. So the audience is just one great blob. <laughs> and you're typically doing it with other people. Even when you have solo parts, they're, you know, it's part of a larger thing. And one of the hardest transitions to writing was you could see everyone and they could see you and you could look yeah. eye to eye and there was no blob. It was, you know, very real in that way. And so that took a little getting used to, to be honest. Uh, but that's a really good question. I, I wish I could say like, yes, professional training as a performer, but I think other people see that in me way more than I see it in myself. Speaking of seeing people yeah, at, or like being right near your audience. What I found is that since I've talked about how my novel has a lot in common with parts of my own autobiography, and I'm sure as memoir authors, you get this too. People want to talk to me about really personal things. Yeah, and then yeah. I want to say like, no, like, I, I wrote it down because that's how I wanted to, to, to express this, not because I wanted to have personal conversations with strangers. That's why I wrote it. That's why I fictionalized it. Yeah, it's nice to make a difference, but it is for anybody who's writing about, let's say, trauma, you know, in the in the big sense of the word, you get a you get people unsolicited sent telling you about their trauma like i i have my friend haley calls them trauma dumpers you know it's like they don't they don't want a response they want to be heard but so i you know it's just you, you nod and i'm sorry that happened to you and but it's a lot like if you if i had to learn boundaries right jt i bet you have similar things and and i wanted to about you in terms of audiences like and seeing them or not you know I yeah that's the one thing my eyes do well is block. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> block that out. yeah just blur the ever-loving hell out of a big crowd <laughs> and yeah it's it's uh my nerves come not from that but yeah for for years there was just residual nerves in front of an audience for for my first book even though with Academy Gothic, it was a novel, uh, but my protagonist was legally blind. And so I had, in ways, started talking about that publicly for the first time. I was still very nervous about doing my Cyrano method of, of reading with my earbuds and basically reciting or performing the, the digital voice in my ear into my own speech. And so the flaws of that, it was very much performance anxiety because it it wasn't just getting up there and, and reading. It was it was having to hit my marks and, and cues and all that stuff. And and so there was the anxiety of of that. And it, it took until, you know, maybe eight, ten events for that book before the anxiety started to go away. And uh, I, I don't have much now. And, and a, a big part of it is because I'm no longer trying to hide anything unintentionally or intentionally, but I did still, you know, have to invest in some Pepto before some of these Zoom events. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about, you know, there is, first for me, there was this terror about like, there's one thing to write about, to write about what I was writing about, which is adoption and, and early like attachment trauma and, and whatnot. And then there's another thing to speak it, you know, so there's like, there's, writing your voice and there's using your voice. And what I found 
now is that I've, I feel so much stronger in, in using my voice, even through some of the trauma that happened post publication, you know, with, with my family reacting negatively to this memoir and whatnot. I've gotten so much stronger in myself, I think. And I wonder both Renee and JT, what you feel about like, and I don't use this word lightly, but the catharsis of acknowledging, you know, the trauma, you know, acknowledging to the world what that what that means. I've I felt kind of a catharsis to people resonating with my story. And I bet you guys did too. Yeah, I, I appreciate that so much, Megan. And a couple of things kind of surfaced when my book came out. The first was I had a lot of colleagues who knew I was once a dancer and, you know, I'm knocking on 50 right now, right? I turned 49 in December and I look different. I mean, not that I don't have some dancer qualities, but I don't look like my dancer self anymore. And when they read my book, they were like, holy cow, like I knew you were a dancer, but you were like a dancer. (laughs) (laughs) That was weird because I was like, I didn't make this up. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, to also read about like how that like had a, you know, serious break when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and you know, I had some people tell me how they thought I should write about rheumatoid arthritis, and it was not at all the experience that I had. And so I pushed back on that a lot. And it's really interesting to see how people react to, but like, oh my gosh, it was taken away from you. And I'm like, yeah, you've known me a while. You know, it's, it's weird that it has been people that, you know, I think know me fairly well, but... You know, I think also that like owning that voice, for me, it really came right, like there's a split at two parts of the book and there's a an essay, it's the second one and the second part called In Sickness, where I'm like a little salty about like how I'm going to talk about illness <laughs> because I don't want to be told. I don't want it to follow like some prescripted this is how you write about trauma, illness, whatever. Like this was my experience of it. And mm-hmm. I'm gonna and I've had weird pushback on that. And I'll be interested to hear from you guys too, the things that you've had weird pushback about. But I've also had a lot of people that that's their favorite part of the book. Yeah. They feel like it's real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that part of the book too. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, that's the thing is this would be different if we were all doing nonstop in-person events because people are far, far shyer on Zoom. <laughs> I mean, nobody can come up to you and bend your ear for those awkward 20 minutes after a, a Zoom event the way that, you know, I've heard stories of people doing. And you're, you're grateful for people connecting with your work, but yes. you do sort of become representative of your subject matter. And that's where it gets odd in a few different ways. One of them is, is when, like you just said, Renee, somebody doesn't connect precisely with your experience or your lived experience. And, you know, I, I'm encountering and I'm trying so hard not to look and I've, I've sworn off Goodreads, thank God, (laughs) but I've noticed like on Amazon, uh, customer reviews, which I'm also trying not to look at, but you know, 
I'm, I'm like checking, oh, they put some blurbs up uh, or, you know, pull quotes from reviews and, oh, let's just mosey down to the bottom of the page and see what's there. And oh, like, who the heck? Yes. <laughs> oh my God. And, you, and I see, I see some, uh, I, yeah, Megan, you should tell your, your story of this if you're comfortable <laughs> telling that, but the, uh, but I'll see somebody as like, this is just the most frustrating story I don't know why he would feel shame about about <laughs> blindness or disability, and yeah. it's just so frustrating why he wouldn't acknowledge it. And I was like, "That's kind of the middle of the book." I hope I hope you felt frustrated. I, I also hope you read the right. final chapters <laughs> where you know <laughs> that's where we killed the shark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> God, I know. Oh, well, to those to those Amazon reviews, like I, you know, I was told by everyone like don't don't ever go read any reviews yeah. so I I didn't I haven't and uh then a, a friend of mine texted me she's like hey I went to leave you a review and she's like I saw this one star <laughs> she's like I saw this one star review from quote unquote a relative and she knows my story about my sister who's also adopted who has reacted very negatively to anything I write whether it's any, just anything I write and and she reacted very negatively about the publication of the book. She but she wasn't even in it to begin with, you know. And so here I go to my cousin then screen captured it for me and sent it to me, and I was just like, oh oh my god, this is my sister. Obviously, she's using the same language. So one of the things that I've been doing that is cathartic for me is based on my family's negative reaction, like the four people who are closest to me in adoption are the four who's, who've reacted the most negatively about me using my voice, which I think is very, is a, the story of many people now that I hear about adoptees using their voices. And uh, mm -hmm. so I've been like to kind of diffuse the bomb of that sort of grief that like I had intense grief about this, you know, you're abandoned by your family after you write about abandonment <laughs> So I've just been speaking right into that pain as much as possible because I think it's important from the standpoint of being a writer of of memoir and also from for you know being an adoptee and so I you know I I put the I put her one star review on Twitter and just said just said like hey this is what happens sort of like when when adoptees use our voices and I didn't mean it to be like in some sort of victimy way but it, it got so much traction and positive, you know, mm -hmm. feedback that, that it really, it helped. It really helped to kind of share that kind of that pain. Well, it helped so. emotionally, I'm sure. But I, the cool thing was I saw in that thread, people were buying your book as a result of that. Tweet. <laughs> I, mean, they were, I know. I was like, Oh my God, I got to do this more often. <laughs> one of our writing block friends, one of our biggest community members, our most active community members, Tahani Nelson, uses a one-star review of her series that says, there should have been a warning that the protagonist was gay. She uses that as, <laughs> as an ad, and she says it's her most successful ad, her this one-star review. So, Oh, my totally. God. Wait, so you guys, I had an actor from like my one of my favorite shows, Tales from the Loop. He like respond. He's like, now I really want to read your book. Now I'm gonna go buy your book. And I, so I DM him, and I was like, dude, don't buy my book. I'll I'll send you one. Like, you're, this is great. 
She's like, no, no, I want to support your art. And I was like, oh my God, I just, like this community is amazing, right? That's amazing. Megan, I feel like I need to have you on for another topic (laughs) because I've had certain family members who were, who felt defensive that, who felt like I did not own the family story to use (laughs) as a basis for my novel. And they're going to be, even happier when my WVU book comes out because that's actually nonfiction <laughs> includes part of the story. So. Yeah. Oh my God. I'd love to talk because this so, is yeah, so... I want to talk to you about that at yeah. some point. You know, I think too, like community is so important. You know, one of the communities that really has been supportive of me are other uh, dancers who are writers and mm-hmm. talk about like the gift, right? Um, yes, and, I love um, that book. That you know, I I just am thinking about like Renee Daoud, which yep. if you're a former dancer and you love dogs and your name is Renee, you're probably turned into <laughs> is what we've decided. <laughs> I love Renee. She was an editor of mine at Essay, and she's the. She's- yeah Yeah. and so you know folks like her and and Jenny Blum and uh and others that are coming to my mind right now and who I uh, ask for forgiveness but they've they've been a huge bolster to my confidence um you know just putting the book out there because so much of what comes out of dance are like famous dancers right and so like I you know I, I was never going to be a famous dancer even if I didn't have RA and everything like that was you know not my trajectory and so you know but the one star review thing is interesting because you have to wonder about the kind of spitefulness behind that and then the goodwill of others to like be like okay you know let's use this as a positive and then speaks to the cultural shift. I mean, there was a time that you would never have that kind of access to somebody who writes a book, but now Mm -hmm. it's almost expected that you have a personal relationship with every person who reads Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. You know, I, uh, yeah, you're, you're like, I think JT said, you know, you're sort of now a spokesperson for, yeah, so that's uh, that's interesting. JT, what about your one-star reviews? Have you had any? <laughs> yeah, I got one uh, last week, but here's the thing. It wasn't – I'm sure there's someone Goodreads. I, I haven't looked. Maybe they've offered comments. But on Amazon, I just noticed uh, that my – like early last week, my my rating took a hit as if I care, which right. I do, but I don't, but I do, <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I was, it said that there was a one star rating, but there was no review attached. It was just like a drive by rating. Oh, and so God. I, yeah. So I'm, I'm speculating like who could have who done was this? It? Was it somebody <laughs> that I blocked on Twitter for being a dick? Was yeah. it somebody who's in the book who doesn't like the way they're portrayed? Was it a friend of somebody who's in the book? I don't know. The mystery will will remain. But I didn't even know you could leave a rating on Amazon without, you know, justifying it with a word or two. Yeah. Right. The shipping <laughs> sucked. It didn't come in time. Yeah, what? right. And they get the one-star review, which reflects on you, but it doesn't reflect on you. You didn't yeah. ship everything out, right? <laughs> I, got a, I got a one-star review on Goodreads for Academy Gothic. 
and the person said that they bought it at AWP and they went to my publisher's table, Southeast Missouri State University Press, and somebody at the table said, oh, you might like this this novel. It, it has ghosts in it. And <laughs> there are like references to ghosts, but it's satirical and there's not actual ghosts. And the guy hated I was told there were ghosts in this book, and there are no real ghosts in this book. One star. Listen, I'm going to tell you this, because I always feel like podcasts, like we're not really, we're just talking to each other, so I'm going to tell you. (laughs) I woke up one day to my Facebook page where my ex-husband's girlfriend, who's, we're not even friends on Facebook, had posted 15, like, negative emoji faces, angry emoji faces on every every listing about my book and I'm like oh, oh my god is happening oh, no. it's like stranger things were in the upside down or something I was like what's <laughs> happening here what's going on people like we can have an honest conversation about how you feel it's okay and the irony the deep irony is that any kind of rating or review Negative brings visibility to the yeah, book. I know. And also, Lauren Huff uh, is is always amazing at you know taking down trolls, and people will reply to her with like, "I, I hated this about your book." She's like, "Well, thanks for buying it anyway." <laughs> exactly. Thanks for reading. <laughs> Request it from your library. <laughs> JT, I know on Twitter you mentioned the that you'd been warned about the two month slump after publication. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the two month slump? Yeah, and that's where I'm like, maybe I'm just so prepared for it that it hasn't really kicked in, or I've had I've had peaks and valleys over the last couple of months where you know you're like asking yourself, have I done everything I should have done? Am I doing enough? Is is it over now? Is you know is this where <laughs> the come down begins. But yeah, Erica Swiler, who's, who's a really good friend, was the first to warn me of this and said, plan to do something really nice for yourself after the two month mark. But now, you know, as I sort of am at that point, I'm like, I, I don't know what that would be. Like for me, doing something nice for myself is like, you know, watching Miami Vice on Roku. <laughs> which I would do anyway. Right. And so it's not really special. And or like, oh, let's just listen to 80s music all day, which is again a typical Thursday. <laughs> it's not really in the budget to go somewhere great. Not that I would right. want to during the pandemic anyway. And then there's like, well, do I eat a whole bunch of bad food, which again, already done. <laughs> I and, depression and, bought this sweater that looks like a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm so out of as a as a writer who's who's never really been of means. I don't really have practice in what's Treating the word yourself. luxuriating. Yeah, yeah. So open true. to ideas. And like you mentioned, especially during COVID, for me, I've gotten into the habit of if there's something nice I can do for myself, I just do it yeah. because yeah. <laughs> look what we're living through. I deserve it anyway. <laughs> so yeah. it's hard to think and of something particularly special to do. I've been uh, ordering my groceries to have them delivered, which is like the big mm. luxurious thing mm. that I did for myself during the whole and I understand how much of a privilege that is. It's not too bad. I we We never went the delivery route, but... I, I do all our grocery list making and, and shopping and cooking, but the um, our local chain for only four ninety five, 
you do the pickup. So they do all the shopping and putting it in the bag and you just arrive and you hand them your debit That's card and they doing. put it in your trunk. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's really just five bucks. And then the delivery is only 15. So it's cheaper than the upcharge for Grubhub, which is like, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm my, very much my grandmother's grandson. I would hang out with her during summers growing up and go to the grocery store and the mall and Kmart and Hex and Hills and all those discount department stores. And I learned the value of a dollar that way. And I also yeah. didn't get an allowance until I did chores. And so I was, yeah. I was very aware of what things cost. And so Lori will, will be like, you're so frugal. And I'm like, I'm just aware of what things should cost. Yeah. And so when I balk at the price of something at the grocery store, she's like, it's not 1986. This is just what it costs. Oh my God. So I used to, yeah. <laughs> I used to shop for clothes and I was like, my price point was 1999. <laughs> <laughs> for literally to like five years ago. And then I was like, oh God, you can't get anything for that right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I think there's probably something to be said for the fact that we come from Appalachia um, yeah. and a culture of I don't, frugality. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My grandparents were, you know, Polish immigrants and depression era, you know, children. And I grew up shopping in thrift stores. He like, I remember one time we went into the Goodwill, which was next to the body shop that he owned. Cause I, we'd go there every and, and just work and play with my uncles and learn how to gap a spark plug and stuff. And he would walk us into the salvation, there's goodwill. And one time he just like opened his arms out and he was like, anything you want, girls, put it on my tab. <laughs> and it was like, you know, we all walked out there. It was like $3 and it was, I had, <laughs> right. and I had a wood bird woodstock and I had a bird cake. It was just sad. That's, that's how I grew up is. And I would, you know, if I had to do back to school shopping for my kids, I'm like, we're going to the Salvation Army first. If you can't find it there, then I guess yeah. you won't have pants. <laughs> <laughs> my my husband's heart is big because he's an accountant. So he's like, <laughs> yes, good job, guys. But and, and he taught me all about unit price when grocery shopping. Yeah. So then, then I got banned from grocery shopping because I wasn't doing it right. So I, I appreciate all this very much. But I, I think that point about Appalachia and I know like for me, you know, teaching students from West Virginia, from from the region, you know, I think about those things and and even just things like course planning, like, okay, how much are all these books? Can you get them used at a price? Like yeah, you know, one of the things, um, you know, GT was was here, and a bunch of students bought his book. We almost sold out of your book at the bookstore, GT, and That's so it cool. was not required of them. But I have had students from across all the disciplines, and especially occupational therapy students and leadership studies students, have talked about mm -hmm. how transformational his reading was for them, and that. So I think one of my strategies is, you know, promoting other people whose books are coming out. There are several that are part of our series and then just some friends um, like my friend Keegan Lester, who I taught as an English 101 student. 
way back in the day and convinced to take a creative writing class. His memoir is coming out. And so new books are something that I've really just kind of poured myself into. And and especially if I can find that like connection to West Virginia, since that's, you know, my little slice of what I can help promote. And I think that buoys me a lot. And that really makes me feel like mm-hmm. I'm part of your community. I, I just, yeah. I love this. I, you know, people talk about like Twitter takedowns and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. I've got, I feel like such a good circle of friends that maybe it's because I don't engage in some of the discourse, quote unquote, because it's <laughs> <laughs> to me. To me, it's just like, I don't need to, I don't want to read somebody else's hot take because it sounds like a steaming pile of poo, but um, I don't, nobody needs that. Like if I'm going to write about something, I want to think about it deeply and have conversations with friends before I, so like the literary community that I found is, is so wonderful. The freaking literary world's hard enough as it is, like it's rife with rejection you have to persist through, you know, everything. And you need people, you know, we need each other. Yeah, I don't think there are many people who can be harder on a writer than we already are on ourselves during mm-hmm. the writing process. Mm-hmm. So like, it's just, you, you have to seek out those people who are, and it's not like you're looking for people who are going to snow job you on, you know, the quality of your work. But I, I think this is something that has to be unlearned from some graduate programs or maybe just from human nature where Mm -hmm. at some stage you realize you're only in competition with yourself and the story that you're trying to tell. JT, I literally say that to prospective students. I'm like, the only person you'll be competing with here is yourself. And that's the only person that matters because it's hard enough, you know? Yeah. So to change gears a little bit, I listened to Dan, what is his name? Dan something, 10% Happier podcast. I can't believe his name slipped my mind. But it's a meditation podcast. And Josh Radner, who played Ted on How I Met Your Uh Mother, who I would not have expected to be a meditation practitioner, but apparently is, went on and spoke a lot about his personal practice and how, especially after he finishes a new project, the first thing people want to ask him is, what's next? What's next? What's next? So... I'm wondering if part of your post-publication experience has been like moving straight into the next, the next project, or if you like Radner, maybe want to sit in the doneness a little bit and what's been more helpful for you. That is such a good question. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, my next project sort of organically arose, like on a writing sort of thing. And that's how it t- kind of tends to be with me. But I also feel like, and, and Megan, maybe you can speak to this too, like my day job kind of takes over. So some of my like getting past the the book is like, oh, well, I got to have a speaker series and I got to run some grants and I got to yeah. you know do some other things like that. So it's a weird, like I, I think what is happening to me is like I I haven't been able to think about like the kind of post book depression as much because I'm being pulled in all these other directions. But the next thing does feel like I feel 
I think my whole life I've felt like I'm never quite going to get there. <laughs> and so I'm always like, I must sit down and write. When am I going to find time to write? Oh my gosh, my calendar is a disaster, you know? Um, and Megan, you know, I know you also balance an administrative role, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Oh, God. <laughs> I feel like I'm in this kind of weird, I know exactly what I want to write for my next book. Ironically, I went, I had the opportunity, a friend of mine asked if I could house it for her in New York City. She has a brownstone of all things. So I went down thinking, okay, I have these two ideas for books, whichever one I come away with after thinking about it for this week is going to be the one I write. And lo and behold, it's the one I never expected to write. But at the same time, I'm in this weird funk. Like I, I got a, a good essay out of it. I'm working with like two of my favorite writers on these, on our books in general, but I cannot, what I need to do in, and this is going to be the part of the weird part of the podcast is where I say, I've consulted a tarot reader <laughs> <laughs> and she said, and this is legitimate. Like I need to just stop doing I need to stop doing and it's so hard for me and probably for everybody in this in these frames to like I don't know what that means what does that mean like I literally have arthritis in my thumb the doctor's like stop making things stop typing I was like I don't know what to do with myself and so yes I mean I have administrative duties and I'm so excited to like invite writers to campus and to to assemble this next class and do all that you know, and so I, I guess I'm just trying to ramble on and say, like, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I I, I know what I want to write. I'm scared to talk about it because I don't want to diffuse it. If you'll see in the background, you'll see my, like, super witchy altar at which I, like, <laughs> Love it. pull tarot <laughs> cards and I'm like, please tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm just in this, like, really squishy space and maybe it's menopause. I, like, I'm squeaky and crying all the time. I don't know. <laughs> you guys are really learning a lot about me. <laughs> I'm really glad you could bring up menopause because I'm like the same. I'm like, is it post book depression? Is it hot flashes in the middle of the night? I know. I, <laughs> I know. I walked around here yesterday. I was like, okay. I said to my boss today, I was like, okay, I'm going to improve my style. I'm going shopping. I'm going <laughs> to dress better I'm gonna level up and I said and meanwhile I'm standing here in Bluntstones le leggings and a ratty old sweatshirt you know I'm like, oh, I'm like good job Megan good job but yeah. well, this this crosses a a conversational item off my bucket list is to uh talk uh menopause with Megan who is is my fellow golden girls friend and uh oh, I love golden girls Megan sent Tell me this isn't the greatest Christmas present ever. She sent uh, <laughs> us a Christmas present two or three years ago. I don't know what time is anymore, but yeah. uh, two or three years ago, it was the special Golden Girls edition of Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> it's just all obscure. And I, I have seen most have episodes. <laughs> I Well, yeah, but it was just me against Lori. But I will say... Out of six questions on every card, I probably only actually knew two of them, and the rest oh, it was just yeah, they were really hard. Well, what you see on my you... altar here, right? So I have three like prayer candles. One of them is rose. 
Excellent. I got Lori the. Uh, every time Betty White um, trends on Twitter. Oh, I know. Every time it's <laughs> <Yes>. her birthday. <laughs> Megan, yeah, I got I'm Lori totally the. Uh, into the the themed candles. I'm writing. I'm working on a um, a novel a romance right now, and so I have my meet cute candle. So oh, I totally I believe it. in the power of <laughs> the power of candles. <laughs> yep. Yep. I have them. I have them everywhere. It's like. <laughs> yeah my son is going power of candles that's the thing yeah so maybe we should talk about do we have any concrete strategies or advice for people who either have a book coming out soon or are in the slump themselves the letdown or the come down or is the advice just kind of this is what happens <laughs> when none of us know what we're doing. <laughs> I will sort of combine that with my, cause I, I, I managed to escape the what's next question there. And <laughs> I started querying blind man's bluff in January of 2018. And so it was, I, I did the count, I did the math. Uh, I think it's like 21 months of querying before I found my agent, but it was, kind of deceptive because I was revising all along that time if I would get any kind of feedback and then I'd pass mm. it off to a, you know a new a new beta reader who I guess was then more like a delta or an epsilon reader or something <laughs> but it was uh, lots of lots of tweaking along the way but you know I kind of thought the memoir was was more or less done in late 2017 early 2018 and so I was querying it because I thought it was done. And I started a new novel in May of that year. And I finally, finally got it ready for readers in March of, or no, in, in June, summer of 2020. And that was when I got first, first reader feedback. But another year went by because, you know, constantly there was all along that process, there was memoir revisions or memoir tweaking. And then once the memoir sold, I had notes from my editor and notes, you know, notes from Eric, my agent before we sent it out. And so there's just constantly working on two things in different stages. And, and it made it easier because I, I did, I, I never gave up on the memoir and finding an agent, but I did start to settle in during the later stages of the agent search where I was like, uh, was I'm probably not going to find an agent for this, but I want it to be as good as it can be when it gets published with some small press somewhere. And, and so it was definitely always within arm's reach while I was writing this novel. So the long answer to the short question of, of what's next is I have a completed novel that I might have gotten notes from my agent on and and who knows when I'll get a chance to revise probably in the next few months I guess but that's my advice always is especially when you're out on submission is is have something else that you're working on or at least thinking about but that is usually when you're you know still up in the air with that that one project but when that project has already come out which is where we all are now. It's a different sort of emotional space where you're trying to build build That's from really an emotional plateau. Good advice. I uh, I think I I want to tell. I mean, my advice, if I'm loath to give it, it's my first time through. But 
I didn't know the, actually the emotional and the physical toll of marketing your book. And in the pandemic, you're marketing it from the same room where you essentially wrote it, you know? So like, uh, treat yourself well and don't, I think I told JT this, you know, early on, I had these expectations. I don't know why about my book, but I, you know, I'd start seeing friends books on these like must read most, you know, read, whatever, you read this list, you know, it's, it's a very, yeah. and I was like, I had this stab of jealousy. And I was like, Megan, you got to sit yourself down and have a business meeting with yourself. Cause this is not your book. This is not what you should expect from your book. And there's no use being jealous or trying to compete in those ways, you know? And once I realized like, you know, what I wanted from my book, which the success of my book for me is the admiration from readers and the, and, and people and other writers that I adore. I mean, the people who blurbed my book, my God, you know, they're just, to me, I'm like, that's success right there, you know? And so I feel like if you can put yourself in that mindset, you know, the measure of your book, it should be like a long-term measurement. It's not just like six months after your publication, you know, oh, that's it. That's all it's going to do. Like it should be a long-term kind of thing. And, and also your mental health is more important and your physical health is more important than the success of your book or your anything, you know, right? Beautiful. That's <laughs> just beautiful. And, and JT, you know, I love, you know, like you're getting these edits from someone else. It's almost like a gift to be able to turn your attention that way. Right. And, yeah. you know, Megan, to your point about like having a business meeting with yourself, like separating the business of books from the artistic pursuit of books. And that's so hard. It is so hard. Those pangs of envy hit us all. We're like, what did I do wrong that I, you yeah. know? And some of it's just dumb luck. Some of it is just, you know, other forces that have nothing to do with you. And that's hard to separate yourself from, you know, all those things. So my advice to, to people are, well, one, I've been taking a lot of uh, daily walks. Um, I have some uh, paths through a wooded area of a park near my house and the park and I spend a lot of time together. And um, that's been really, really helpful to me because I, I feel like I just let go, you know, like I just have found that place. And you're right, like our spaces all of a sudden like condensed so the place that you write and create is also your business office and that's like a terrible way to have to be in the world mm -hmm. um, yeah you know, the other thing is is if you're if you're you know if you're struggling like just admit that you're struggling it's okay to struggle with it like yeah you know, we can't be the rock all the time that you know is strong and and you know unbreaking and all that like no we're we have a gooey candy center we gotta you yeah. know uh, 
you know, admit to this. And, and, and that's actually where I think this, this, you know, you, you kind of grow from the process, I, at least yeah. I hope. But if there's somebody listening, who's really struggling, just find a way to contact me. I'll send you a card. So amazing. I like, it's true. Like this imposter syndrome is really, really hard. And I fully admit, like I, I had a breakdown during my during like this whole process, you know, it was just like, I, oh my God, you know, and I'm so glad I had, I have friends to, you know, to have helped me through it or just, just to know that if you need a break, take a freaking break, you know, just don't, you don't have to get 500 likes on Twitter. That's not measure of any success. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's really not. I think there's quality you know, over quantity. The thing that gets me the most likes on Twitter are pictures of my dog. Oh, no. <laughs> I talk about my butt or something, and it's like, I don't know right, right. likes about my butt. I don't know. That's great. It's just that right. good, I mean, it's know. like, you can't invest in that in that same way, knowing, exactly. like, I mean, it, it's a tool, but it's not the end-all, be-all. I totally, like, when you said that, I was like, yeah. My my dog. I mean, she's an adorable golden retriever. She's super soft yeah. and lovely. Yeah. And yes, everybody likes her on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, uh, Megan. You you mentioned separating business you from author you, and and that's so hard to remember or so hard to do but so important to do because especially when we are in control of our book's fate in ways that we would like to think we're not, but, and you know, it's so much of marketing is, is just voodoo and, and luck, but, and you guys have both published uh, your books, uh, Guild of the Infant Savior from Ohio State University Press and Renee's Fierce and Delicate from WVU Press, both of which had a National Book Award nominee last year. So these are university presses, but that obviously know how to get their books in front of readers. But like my university press for Academy Gothic was basically one and a half employees. And it was, I got used very early and, and I'm, you know, I had a wonderful experience there, but some university presses are just very small. And actually I think OSU and WVU are very small. They're just very, very mighty, but you get very used very early to knowing that you're going to be in control of your book's fate and you have to generate all these things. And you think that the querying is done when you've either found a publisher or an agent or something. And then lo and behold, then you have, you know, start querying bookstores for events. And then you get rejections from bookstores for events. And you're like, I thought I was done with the rejections, but <laughs> And I mean, I have a, an amazing publicist at Norton now, and, and God bless every single thing she has done. And, you know, she has guided me along the way. But that doesn't make the anxiety go away or the fact that, you know, she can say, would you like to pitch something for X, Y, or Z? And I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And then we pitch it and then it gets accepted. It's like, oh, shit, I got to write it. So you're still doing, you're still in control. I mean, you, you are author, but you are marketer. And I no, no matter, unless you're one of like the 100 writers in America who actually make a living off their books, you know, the Stephen Kings or the James Patterson's or whoever, um, you're always going to be 
still doing things to get your book's attention. And so, yeah, I mean, no wonder we're neurotic as hell. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's really been a coming to terms with realizing that I can't just keep waiting for some unknown thing to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that thing is. So that's why I've really had to write. I actually wrote down like, okay, I want to sell 5,000 copies. I want to be in this bookstore. I want to like be asked to do this kind of workshop, like very specific goals, because otherwise I'm just going to be waiting and waiting for something to happen. (laughs) I will tell you on the other side of, a lot of those goals of mine being accomplished, like bucket list goals, never underestimate the ability of a writer to move the goalposts on a daily basis. Exactly. That's why I had to that's why I had to write those down because I was thinking, I was just I realized I was in the space of waiting for something to happen. And I went back and I thought, like, what was my goal when I finished this yeah. book? And my goal was to have somebody I didn't know read it and like it. That was it. Yeah. And I met that. And then I have these goals and I was like, I'm going to write those down so that I can actually feel accomplished and not just keep moving, <laughs> not just keep moving the goalposts. Yeah. Yeah. I think the agent question is such a good one because I'm writing a book that may for the first time in my life, not be so niche, right? Like I kind of <laughs> have a niche, like, you know, I get these very like kind of tight and and so I'm like, well, do I get, do I look for an agent? I've had really good success on university presses. You know, I, I worked on an edited book with Nebraska. It was a great experience. I worked on this book with WBU Press. So do I, do I kind of stick my, you know, books of poetry on an independent press? So do I stick with that? Because I know that world and I'm comfortable and, and I've done well, like I'm incredibly grateful. Or do I, do I look for an agent for the next one? Is that the right thing to do for my book? And that's the question, like, what's the right thing to do for the next book? Like, and that's the one thing the past book kind of teaches you about, but does it, there's no roadmap from here. (laughs) It's the same with writing. Yeah. I mean, each book, what is it? They tell, tell us each book teaches you how to write it while you're writing it. I was like, first time I heard that, I was like, Ooh, that sounds, that sounds very wise. And then, while you're writing the book, you're like, who's the asshole who said that? <laughs> and and then the question becomes, will I ever use that? What it taught me? Probably not because the next book's totally different. Yeah. Well, this has been really wonderful. Uh, could each of you please share where to find you online, where to find yourself online? I will go first because I am, yeah, since I am probably on Twitter the most frequently. Uh, <laughs> I'm just on uh, Twitter at James Tate Hill, and you can find me on my website, uh, jamestatehill.com. I'm on Twitter at Megan Galbraith, and uh, you can find me on my website uh, at uh, megangalbraith.com. And I am I'm at, on Twitter as SummerBooks1. Uh, but you can find me at my website, which is just ReneeNicholson.com. And thanks for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for their continued support. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at writingblock.com, no K. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing.